This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Our guest tonight, Steve Wasserman, speaks passionately about the future of books and the future of reading in the digital age. He is director of the literary agency Neerum and Williams at Fish and Richardson and former editor of the Los Angeles Times Book Review. In part one, Wasserman discusses readers versus editors, information versus wisdom, and the chemical charge a good book produces. But first, an introduction by editor and writer-at-large for the Los Angeles Times, Thomas Kerwin. Where do I begin? I met Steve in 1996. I remember the day well. It was December 22nd. I, at the time, was laboring in somewhat obscure anonymity in the advertising department of the L.A. Times and moonlighting as a freelance writer and as a book reviewer. And I'd noticed on the company bulletin board a posting for an opening for the deputy editor with the book review, and I took a shot at it. Steve, of course, had just come on board, and that morning we met at 8 a.m. He welcomed me into his office. I'll never forget it. It turned out to be a two-hour interview, almost 90 of which Steve regaled me with his vision of Los Angeles, or perhaps better, it was his vision of literary Los Angeles. And it was rather dizzying, having everything to do with cultural earthquakes and the seismograph of our collective consciousness, with Danielle Steele and Susan Sontag, with the so-called divisions between high and low culture, between the city-states of our city anchored by Barnes and Nobles, by Borders, by Starbucks, with Ray Bradbury and George Steiner. And all of this was before we had a cup of coffee. I made my pitch for the opening, and because everything at the Times takes a little bit of time, it took me two months before I discovered that I had the job. In the meantime, I did a little bit of homework on Steve. I had a chance to learn that he'd been the editorial director at Times Books back when it was a division of Random House, that he'd served as a publisher and editorial director of Hill and Wang, a division of Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux, and that he'd headed Noonday Press, the firm's paperbacked imprint. He'd also been editor-in-chief of New Republic Books, and going way back, as he might say, back to the Pleistocene, he was the assistant editor of the Los Angeles Times Sunday Opinion Pages and the Op-Ed Page. Once on board with the book review, I could always count on every day being an adventure in ideas. Steve edited the review as a reader, someone whose greatest pleasure was to happen upon a subject he had no idea about or to be challenged by an author whose take on a familiar story was compelling or especially complicated. Our conversations would range from Eastern European poetry to the design of railroad bridges in the West from protest buttons of the 60s to the poster art of the Cuban Revolution, from the origins of the English novel to modernism. Nothing was out of bounds. Each week we debated content for the review, for what our cover stories would be, and the art that was to accompany each piece. I considered myself extremely lucky. And from Steve, I learned a couple of truths that have stayed with me since. He believes that civilization is built on a foundation of books, that great writing matters greatly, and that books should involve us morally, socially, and personally in profound ways, that nothing is more important to an editor than being loyal to the writer and to the writer's vision, and that readers have a greater capacity and willingness to understand complicated ideas than editors are sometimes willing to concede, and that information as information becomes abundant, 
wisdom grows scarce, that the life of the mind and the world of the books is an open democracy. I'm sure this is part of what he'll touch upon tonight. Today, Steve is the director of the literary agency Neerham and Williams at Fish and Richardson. When he left Los Angeles, he left us enriched for his presence and impoverished for his departure, which makes it all the more wonderful to welcome Steve back to Los Angeles. Steve. Thank you, Tom. The nine, nearly nine years that I was privileged to serve as editor of the L.A. Times Book Review, I staked a small amount of the career on the odd presumption, or at least odd to my old colleagues back in the East Coast, which had been ensnared in a, in a kind of cauldron of cliché about Los Angeles. Uh, I had staked a bit of the career on the, on the presumption that there were enough adults in Los Angeles who wanted to be spoken to as adults and not served up the baby talk that so much passed for the daily fare in most of what passes for American journalism. And I thought uh, the Los Angeles Times could certainly lead the way. And to my very great delight, there was a resounding echo of enthusiasm among many tens of thousands of people here in Los Angeles, and I'll forever be grateful for their reception. I also want to uh, say, and it's germane to tonight's subject, Do Books Have a Future in the Digital Age? I want to begin by uh, thanking the library, uh, the Los Angeles Public Library, which in the last three years has seen uh, an extraordinary expansion, I think, alone of any uh, metropolitan area in the entirety of the United States. Uh, 34 new branches have been added in just the last three years. There are now 71 branches. And these branches were constructed, I should add, on time and under budget. 15 million people uh, visited the library last year. Or I should say more precisely, there were 15 million visits. It may have been the same 3 million people visiting, you know, uh, five times each. Uh, so I think one should look at that statistic with some, some, uh, some scrutiny. 15 years ago, there were only eight branches that had community rooms. Today, in every one of the 71 branches, there is a community room. And in so vast and sprawling an area as Los Angeles, in which a certain kind of human commerce is more a result of serendipity than it is of... uh, more a result of will than it is of serendipity, these community rooms have become a kind of ganglia by which people, like-minded people, can recognize each other, each of them enrolled uh, against the backdrop of books. And so one would think that these statistics alone, the library rising like a phoenix from the disaster of the fire in 1986, the extraordinary outpouring from every conceivable kind of community, the ways in which the library uh, has become a kind of nodal point or a focal point for many people throughout the, the, the region, one would think that this would be uh, reason enough to feel optimistic about uh, books going forward. Now, one of the things I want to do is I want to get rid of this lectern a little bit and, uh, and take up this microphone so that we can have more of a conversation and you don't feel I'm, I'm remote. I'm already remote enough by having clad myself with this suit, which is designed to, to try to uh, keep the opposition, whoever they may be, at bay. Um, <laughs> but the truth of the matter is that while I've been asked to give a little talk or, give, or share with you some ruminations on on the future of the book in the digital age. The the truth of the matter is that no one can know the future. 
Uh, it's difficult enough to know the eternal present in which all of us are living. And the past, as has been remarked, is a foreign country. So if we can never know the future, because we're never going to actually live in it, it'll always be for us the present. And if the past is a foreign country, and it's very hard to even know oneself, we're going to have a lot of problems figuring out going forward what the future is of almost anything. So almost every prediction is likely to be false. So I, I would just say that these are some reflections of a person who all his life loved the written word and who all his life felt that books rather uniquely in form and in their substance, not only in their content, were a treasure, the likes of which uh, needed to be valued and they were important. On the other hand, let's ask the question in a different way. Um, What's the future of the papyrus scroll in the age of Gutenberg? I mean, there might well have been a time when those people who had grown up with scrolls might have been very fearful about the advent of a printing press which would dramatically make available in a mass way information previously available only to a a small cultured and educated elite. And there might well have been people who were rightly nostalgic and who who would say, you know, when you unscroll the scroll and only a few lines are revealed at a time, there's a way in which you absorb knowledge and absorb wisdom, which turning these pages, which you see so much at a time and it's overwhelming, uh, there's really something that's lost. And one of the things that might be lost is the solitude or serenity that you need in a more and more crowded and noisy world to actually find your way to that most elusive of virtues, wisdom itself. And so the ancients may well have regarded with a great deal of trepidation the advent of, of something that we are now at a moment, five, six hundred years on, uh, are beginning ourselves to look on with some considerable concern that we are passing from one great age to another. And we're fearful of where this new age, where this new age may bring us. But we're right to be concerned, at least up to a point. Where that point is, I'm going to allow you to judge, because I don't know where it is. And so this is a conversation that I want to embrace. It's a Monday, Wednesday, Friday conversation. I lean one way on this issue, and on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I lean another way. This is Tuesday, so I'm leaning the other way tonight. But on the weekends, I assure you, I'm tortured by doubts, and that's how I know I'm an intellectual. (laughs) What is a book? I mean, there are many. I spent nine years, as Tom can attest, examining upwards of about five or six hundred books a week that were sent to me. And of the 180,000 book-like objects that are manufactured in this country every year, at the Los Angeles Times, we had room enough to note or review about 1,200 of them in the course of the year. The good news is that the universe of the worthy far exceeded the amount of space we could devote to them. Uh, And of course, theoretically, the internet, that vast democracy wall in which almost any crank can post his or her opinion, no matter how reckless or frivolous or wise or or incisive, uh, theoretically offers an endless supply of virtual newsprint so that we should, in an ideal world, actually be able to render an assessment or a judgment or an exploration of every single title that anybody would ever want to, to publish. A book... There are two kinds, broadly speaking. They, they're, they're, uh, there's what we know of as literature or fiction, 
and then there's nonfiction. Of course, as we've seen in the recent uh, uh, business with Mr. Fry, uh, the boundary often seems blurry. I only wish that Nan Talese, his publisher at, uh, at Doubleday, had had the wit when she was on Oprah to uh, quote Oscar Wilde, and I wish she could have done so in her high Tory, rather pinched voice. I wish she could have just turned to Oprah and say, oh, but as Oscar Wilde once remarked, never let a fact get in the way of a good story. And I guess we didn't. She also could have had the temerity or courage to take Oprah to task for actually encouraging a culture of embellishment, which is a, one of the main means by which an author might actually get a shot at her show in order to sell the hundreds of thousands of copies that it takes to be a bestseller in today's world. Uh, but she had neither because the publishers are hostage to this rainmaker and this gatekeeper. And so there was a kind of collapse of will there. Books are still despite all the distractions and seductions of the infotainment industry, they are still the best and most sensuous means of the conveyance of deep knowledge and lasting entertainment yet invented. The Internet, which banishes geography, and as a means for the sale and distribution of books, witness Amazon, has been very effective and, and very encouraging You can live in Bozeman, Montana, or you can live in Los Angeles, and almost anything can be ordered and you can receive it. So this is quite a boon. Uh, As I say, geography matters not at all. But it does appear to be very difficult to get people to actually sit in front of a computer screen and read hundreds of pages. They don't have the patience for it. There's something about it which, as yet, hasn't been solved. So for the quick strike for the sudden uh, burst of energy, for the extraction of bits and pieces of knowledge, for surfing through uh, a myriad of channels and to extract from those channels information that might enhance or help you in your daily life or in whatever activity that you're researching. It's a fantastic instrument and genuinely revolutionary. I note, however, uh, that when I was flying out here yesterday from New York and I was uh, catching up on my paper in the morning, that the New York Times had a rather dispiriting uh, little item. Web readers hit the books less frequently. A study has shown that uh, if you're a devoted web browser, you're less likely to actually read books. Uh, Interestingly, you're not less likely to diminish your reading of periodicals and magazines. Largely, I suspect, because magazines mimic very much the kind of experience you get on a virtual page. You flip through it, you browse it, they're works of, of deep shallow at their best. Um, but, but the book retains a, a kind of chemical charge that the Internet as yet does not evince. I note that so uh, respected an avatar of the virtual world, Bill Gates founder of Microsoft, some uh, years ago, when he wanted to commit the vision thing, instead of posting his pronunciamentos on a website for which he conceivably could have charged admission and gotten a lot of people who would like to hear what he has to say about both the present and the radiant future, nonetheless went to that most old-fashioned and archaic of places. He went to a publisher. He went to the Viking Press, and he published a book. Why did he do this? Because books still retain the patina of authority that only time can bestow. So I don't think myself that books are in any danger of disappearing anytime soon. 
I certainly don't think, as I have argued in other forums, that the human need, even addiction, to storytelling is going to uh, disappear. Indeed, I would argue that along, as I have in other arenas, that along with our opposable thumb and our endless need to tell each other stories, sometimes the same stories, over and over again, albeit in new guise, it's perhaps one of the things that even defines us as a species. This is not going to disappear. Whether we tell those stories and they're put up on a silver screen or whether they're downloaded as images in whatever device that uh, human creativity will imagine and manufacture, or whether they come to us via the internet, that's not going to disappear. More problematic, however, and a question that I think is even more serious, is that, yes, there may be books, and people will write them. And even there's a vote of confidence in this. Uh, Yesterday it was announced that the French publisher Hachette has bought for half a billion dollars uh, the Time Warner Book Group. And that includes Little Brown, the publisher of Michael Connolly. Uh, it includes uh, uh, the Warner 12, which Jonathan Karp edits. He was the editor of Seabiscuit. It's a curious thing that at the moment when a number of American concerns are uh, advancing with great alacrity to what used to be called the information superhighway and have rather a feeling that they're presiding over dinosaur institutions, those print institutions like newspapers and book publishers, it's a curious thing that a lot of foreigners are coming and buying those concerns, seeing opportunities where too many American concerns only see problems. So it's a very curious thing at the moment where we have two German concerns, Bertelsmann and Holtzbrink, who owned the whole Random House Doubleday Group and St. Martin's and Farrer Strauss, and now Hachette, the French, of all people, who make a vote to come and colonize our book publishers. So what is it that these foreigners see that we don't seem to get? Or maybe it's just that they're stuck in the old world. Maybe it's just that they're stuck in the past, and they can't get rid of this rather nostalgic and even by turns unseemly attachment to the old ways of doing things, and they're insufficiently enthused about the new way of doing things. I have no doubt that for a variety of reasons, both having to do with the scarcity of trees one day, the costs of manufacturing, and the economic efficiencies that uh, the digital world will provide, that books at some point will probably be diminished as scientists and uh, technological innovators figure out how to square the circle and make it possible for you to carry around a device that can be folded up, put in your back pocket, read on the beach, uh, read on the, uh, on the toilet, and that uh, you will derive a lot of pleasure from, and that will even more or less resemble a kind of book, but which will, you'll have access to you know, the whole of, of human knowledge. I have no doubt that one day that may well become a practical option for, for many people. It's a little bit like when I hear people say, you know, uh, uh, it's like the Roman Empire. Western civilization is all collapsing. Well, it's true. At some point, the Roman Empire did collapse, but people tend to forget it took 800 years. And for most of that time, it didn't feel to most of the people living in that period as if it was genuinely collapsing. Um, more serious to me is, is the question whether or not there'll be any readers. And about this, I have some doubts. Um, And that, to me, I think there may be many books, but who will read them? And I say this in all seriousness. The library, which I'm at pains to praise for all the obvious and and good reasons, the library has expanded its 34 branches, but I'm informed that circulation is down, in fact, despite the 50 million people. I ask the question, what are they actually doing in the library? The growth is in the DVDs. The growth is in the videos. The growth 
is in all kinds of things that have a, a somewhat tenuous relationship to actual books. You're listening to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We will return to Steve Wasserman and whether books have a future in the digital age after this. Support for programming on KPCC is provided by the Huntington and San Marino. Presenting sensation and sensibility. Viewing Gainsborough's Cottage Door. More information on the web at Huntington.org. KPCC reaches a large, active, intelligent audience. To learn how your organization or business can reach that audience, call Sandy at 213-621-3592. Next time on Day to Day, life in an L.A. suburb best known for gang violence. You know, they should consider these gangbangers as terrorists. There's somebody's sons, there's somebody's husbands. And you got to look at them as such. you got to look at them as human beings. The impact of gangs on a community straight out of Compton. Next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. This is Larry Mantle inviting you to join me starting Monday for a week-long series of health specials on AirTalk as well as other KPCC programming here on 89.3. Monday, we lead off with a look at ghetto miasma. You live in one part of L.A., you get sick, move to another part of town, you get better. What are the reasons for that? We'll talk about it, as well as other important issues like insuring the uninsured in California, all next week on AirTalk. This is John Raby on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. Coming up on Monday's Talk of the City, we're going to talk about $70 million in state funding that's going to help some of the homeless here with mental health services. Also, the problems that 20-somethings have getting health insurance. That's Monday's Talk of the City at 2 on 89.3 KPCC. Thanks for joining us on Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We now return to Steve Wasserman speaking on the future of books in the digital age. In this part, Cuba, the ability to comprehend what one reads, and the danger of totalitarian capitalism. The National Endowment for the Arts uh, commissioned uh, a study that lasted 20 years ago. They announced the results last July based on various census. And for the first time since they began asking the questions over a 20-year period, a majority of Americans, when asked the question, did, over the course of last year, did you read a novel, a play, or a poem? And by the way, under novel, that means anything that was called a novel. It could be Danielle Steele. It could be called, uh, you know, Susan Cheever. It didn't matter its relative uh, literary merit. Did you read a novel at all? And for the first time, only 47% of Americans said yes. A majority of Americans say they didn't, they didn't go near it. Now... To be sure, the study did not ask them at the same time, did you read any book of any kind, any nonfiction of any kind? Maybe biographies were up. We don't, we don't know. But I'm also told this uh, informally as I make my rounds uh, among publishers and editors. Uh, I hear over and over again the mantra, fiction is very hard to publish. Very hard. All kinds of fiction. Not, not, uh, it's very hard to get an audience uh, for this. 
Um, so one of the things that most concerns me and, and tr- troubles me is that we may be entering an era in which all the distractions and, and seductions that are provided by a, a, a very noisy culture that provides us with instruments that tend to uh, uh, slice and dice our attention spans may have enfeebled our capacity, our cultural capacity as a people to have what uh, in German used to be called Sitzfleiß, to have the uh, uh, wherewithal to sit for long periods of time and actually make your way through the long arc of a narrative. Now, you may scoff at this, but it's not the first time in the course of human culture or civilization that certain forms have, been, have, have become extinct. Nobody really writes symphonies anymore, really. Nobody really writes sonnets anymore. There are lots of art- aesthetic forms that, no one, that there's no real audience for. I, I note that one of the most interesting of the classical music websites has just gone out of business. Classical music, we hear on every front, is dying by, by rates of attendance, by, by, is, is dying. Um, and maybe one day, in fact, it will be dead. Um, I think that will be a great tragedy in the course of human affairs. What concerns me is that there is increasingly a large divide between the chattering classes and elite Mandarin of people who are committed to the book. And believe me, they will continue to read because they will understand that the way to rule is through knowledge, and knowledge is power, and they will have their debates, and books will continue to be influential in those debates, and then they'll just be everybody else, unable really to make any kind of analytical distinction between truth and fiction, between a lie, a canard, a falsehood, a shading of the truth. And I think this has a very serious implications for our democracy because, because in, the, in the digital world, if, if, if there aren't people whose attention spans are, are equipped them to, to read long-form narrative, that combined with what has to be called the collapse of public education in this country um, is a double blow to the democratic ideal. And we, we may well look back on the past hundred years as a very odd moment that the great experiment in democracy, which this republic undertook 75 or 80 years ago in the introduction uh, of, of public education as a way of equipping a, a, a heretofore semi-literate and even illiterate working class with the tools they needed to become integrated into the society, we may face uh, uh, once again uh, people who can make the distinction between a Nike and another make of tennis shoe who can make distinctions between this or that uh, uh, product uh, that is uh, fobbed off on them, uh, who may be equipped with all manner of gadgets which will not only provide them with advertising jingles and images 24-7, but which will target those images to their individual taste. Ray Bradbury, where are you? Ray was right, more right than I think he knew in Fahrenheit 451. You'll have a mumbling chattering group of aesthetes who will wander in our diminished forests reciting Jane Austen and other titles to themselves and they'll just be everybody else who will regard these people as undemocratic elitists who deserve to be rendered well, who deserve to be exterminated because their un 
holy alliance with objects of classical works which no one else can understand will be regarded as a badge of, of both their, their un, untoward superiority to everyone else and a badge of how they have separated themselves from what will be considered popular, populist, and mainstream culture. And the irony here is that that battle will be waged by the very people who reserve for themselves the right to continue to read the New York Review of Books and renew their library cards, but in the name of, of a greater majority will preside over institutions that will inexorably lead to the dumbing down of the citizenry. That's the bad news. And this is Tuesday night. Now, Wednesday, I'm going to feel a little different. But I have to tell you, there was something of this that I experienced uh, a number of years ago on a trip to Cuba. I spent an evening with a marvelous man, now dead, alas, named Jose Pepe Feo Rodriguez, wonderful guy, uh, who cast his, light with the Cu- cast his lot with the Cuban Revolution, who was the scion of a, of a great sugar family. The rest of his family had come to the United States, and he was young and a little foolish, and he said, I'm going I'm to help make the radiant future. When I met him, he was a pretty broken-down guy. He'd gone to Yale in the 40s. He was a friend of Wallace Stevens, carried on a correspondence. He'd presided in the 50s over a, a fantastically brilliant uh, a literary journal, which was the Partisan Review of Cuba in those days. He had every important Latin American author uh, and European author like Albert Camus and others uh, uh, writing for him. And I met him. He was... We drank till 3 in the morning, and he said, what have you been up to? And I said, I went to the little bookstore across from the old Havana uh, Hilton Hotel, now for some years, some decades now, called the Havana Libre. And I went to this little bookstore, and he said, he shrugged his shoulders, he says, what did you find in that bookstore? And I said, well, I found some dusty copies of the complete works of Albania's Enver Hoxha. I found some works of Kim Il-sung. I found some very dusty works of Marx and Lenin. He says, oh, nobody, nobody reads those things. Nobody reads those things. And then I found, I said, the only book I found worth reading in the whole place, in the, tucked in the corner, was the extraordinary work by Eric Auerbach called My Mises, which is an extraordinary book about representations in Western uh, literature uh, written when he was in exile in Constantinople, Istanbul, during uh, the Second World War on the run from fascist Germany. And he'd written, he'd lost his whole library, and he'd written this fantastic book, From the Odyssey to James Joyce, a, a, a masterpiece of literary criticism. And uh, Pepe Rodriguez looked at me and he's in great astonishment, and he said, it's fantastic that in Cuba you found such a book. He said, that's very good news. But, he said, I have bad news for you. I said, what is the bad news? He said, well, it's good news and bad news. The good news is that we have achieved 100% literacy. The bad news is that there's not a person in Cuba today who can read that book and understand any of its cultural references. We may find ourselves in a similar condition in the United States, but we'll get there, not through the conditions of totalitarian socialism, but something called totalitarian capitalism, which elevates in an amoral way, in an acultural way, Values and virtues that are entirely market-driven, but which give no uh, privileged place to enduring social values, which we need to be concerned about if we're really to survive and thrive as a people. You've been listening to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We will return to Steve Wasserman and audience questions emerging from the discussion, Do Books Have a Future in the Digital Age? After this.
inside scoop on your favorite public radio station? Now's the perfect time to get connected to 89.3 KPCC when you register for the Community Connection e-newsletter. Each month we'll send you news and updates about your favorite programs, community event highlights, and exclusive benefits for listeners and members like you. Sign up today at kpcc.org, and thanks. Brian Boucher had a roommate and didn't know much about him until it became clear how much the roommate knew about Boucher. I went into his room to pack up his things and came across a file including my social security number, notes on my current credit card information, the names and addresses and phone numbers of all my immediate family members. I'm Steve Inskeep. We're talking about privacy or the lack of it all this week on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. Hi, I'm Mia Vardalis, and I'm a KPCC listener because public radio is like a big family. There's always a lot of ideas, there's a lot of discussion, and every member plays their part. Now, you're a part of this family just by being a listener, and we are asking you to become a financial supporter as well. Become a member of the KPCC family, the big fat family, today by calling 866-888-5722 or join online at kpcc.org. Thank you. On the next Fresh Air, we meet singer-songwriter Stuart Murdoch of the indie pop band from Scotland, Bell and Sebastian. Their new CD is The Life Pursuit. Join us for the next Fresh Air. Weekdays at 1 and 7 on 89.3 KPCC. You're listening to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Steve Wasserman, literary agent, now concludes his talk on the future of books in the digital age. I have to check the time here because I do want to allow uh, an opportunity for questions, and I think that moment has just about come. Uh, But I want to end with somewhat of an optimistic uh, note. Success culturally should never be measured by numbers alone. And, uh, well, now that I reference Cuba, I could quote in in another context something that the great Cuban poet and statesman Jose Marti once said. He said, what counts is is not the number of weapons on on hand, but rather the number of stars on your forehead, which I suppose is another way in another register of saying something similar to what Arthur Kessler, the author of Darkness at Noon, once uh, said in response to an interviewer who asked him, Uh, If you had to make a choice between having uh, 100 readers in the present and 10 readers 100 years from now, which would you choose? And he unhesitatingly remarked, oh, 10 readers 100 years from now, and then paused and said, but I suppose such sentiment gives no comfort to my publisher who hopes still to be in business. (laughs) Well, I'd like to have your questions. This is only the beginning of a conversation. I'm sure we'll all carry on for some time to come. Thank you. Could you comment a little bit about imagination and the ability to think rather than just have knowledge and information? I'm not a big fan of imagination and vision untethered to knowledge. That just seems to me bloviating. Uh, The Internet has provided 
a life's work for many people who are pleased to call themselves bloggers. That just means people who have an opinion and the courage to share it with others. Um, Victory will go, and by that I mean respect and readers will be won based on the accuracy of the opinion, how informed it is, how plausible it is over time. And over time, those people who have such opinions and such imagination tethered to actual fact will develop deserved readerships, as I think has been the case with the best of America's news organizations who have spent many years trying to train, and it's a human enterprise, so it's enormously fraught, and there are considerable weaknesses, but have spent many years trying to train a cadre of people uh, known as reporters to be able to discriminate a fact from a non-fact and to try to report it as scrupulously as possible, untethered to prejudice. Now, this is like trying to achieve perfection. It's a very elusive thing. It's humanly fraught. But to the extent that you get it more right than you don't, to that extent, you will deserve readers. Uh, Do you feel it's appropriate to comment on the Google Digital Library Project versus the American publishing industry? I do feel it's appropriate to comment on uh, the Google Project and the... uh, Um, The future is a steamroller. Uh, On the one hand, that twilight zone day seems to be fast upon us where everything can be digitized and accessed. To find a way to do so without violating the uh, rights of authors, their intellectual property rights, hard-fought over many, many years, uh, seems to me to be very important. And it shouldn't be accepted simply on its face value, it seems to me, that there's a technological steamroller that's just willy-nilly going to suck up everything in sight and then spit it out for its own profit. Um, Authors have rights, and those rights need to be respected. But we have entered a brave new world, and how those rights are going to be determined, how they're going to be delineated, and how structures and institutional structures are put in place so that those rights can be protected and preserved while at the same time making it possible for people to access information they they need to have. Um, That's going to be a challenge that will have to be met by all parties to all of this. Uh, there, There are competing and overlapping interests here, but I'm optimistic that in the end... Uh, solutions will be found that will respect the entrepreneurial and business rights and privileges of of Google, uh, but will also uh, respect the the proprietary rights of uh, authors and publishers alike. You gave us a very uh, um, bad point of view for the future of, of our readership. What do you think would change that? Paying our library fines. I don't know, is the honest answer. Uh, I don't know that anything will change that. I mean, reading has always been a minority taste. I mean, originally, and even to this day, serious reading has largely been the province of women. The novel, it could be argued, uh, is... I mean, the first novel in the English language, Clarissa and Pamela, 
uh, are, are novels about the plight, predicament, and the suffering of women. Women were the greatest readers of novels since the invention of the novel, and they remain so today. Americans, since bestseller lists were, were kept, uh, have been a people given when they decide to read, they tend to read for moral, spiritual, or physical self-improvement. I mean, they read about how to build a better roof over their, uh, their, their heads, they read about how to shed some pounds, or they read the lives of the secular saints, how Lee Iacocca bettered himself. The new novel, uh, or the novel uh, uh, expanded from merely the predicament of women, and I would argue that the novels that have recently come out in Los Angeles, not the old noir novels so successfully uh, mined by, by Joan Didion and, and Raymond Chandler and Nathaniel West, that's now a trope by now so successfully inserted into the frontal lobe of the popular conscience that it's hard even for people in Los Angeles to think afresh about the very city they inhabit, but other novels written by, by people of color from other communities uh, that are trying to uh, get their arms around this strange and ungainly place called Los Angeles, uh, so balkanized by geography. Uh, Those novels, too, whether they're uh, about the Korean-American experience or whether they're about the Asian uh, experience or whether they're about the Latino experience, all seem to me, in my reading of them, to be grappling with a single and very um, old theme in, a, in, the, in the American novel, at least an old theme from the late 19th century forward, which is about assimilation and its discontents. It's about people's struggle to understand themselves in, as Americans, what it means to be America, even at a moment when the idea of America is undergoing a kind of sea change, and what it means to become untethered to the old country, the old habits, the old language, and to find yourself in moral, political, or cultural freefall. This seems to me something that could easily have been said about the Jewish-American novel. It can be said about all the other ethnic novels. It is the novel as a form of identity politics, but by other fictive means, because the truth that can be found in a novel, it packs a greater wallop often than the meticulously reported truths of the daily a newspaper. I often uh, think when I wander among the books that I have at home, uh, there's a shelf of uh, nonfiction from Plato to NATO, and then there's the shelf of fiction from the Arabian Nights to Stefan Zweig. And I used to think all the truth was on one part, and all the dreams and ambitions and, and, and lies, however elegantly told, were on the other. But I now, of course, believe that there's more truth in the short stories of Chekhov than in the whole of Edward Gibbon. Hello. Um, I guess I'd like to mention the idea of um, the tyranny of text. Of the what? Of tyranny of, of text. Um, I was a literature semiotics-focused major at UC Santa Cruz, and there was always this focused on um, what kind of social movements and social energies being trapped in the solitude of writing a text and the solitude of sharing text that could be um, diffused in a different way in theater or music as text, dance as historical, um, as story. And I was trying to tie that back together in my head of, like, the dropout rates in Los Angeles and kids not engaging in texts anymore, kids totally not caring about books. Is that liberating that they engage in, like, images and semiotics and that they can engage more orally and share more directly with each other? Or are they losing something very important in in understanding a story, you know? Like well, I'm, how, I'm how glad you asked me this question. Uh, I was waiting for this question. <laughs> and I have the answer to your question. They are losing something. It won't do just to be fixated in an oral tradition. Why do these traditions have to be opposed one to the other? 
Why can't they be inclusive? Why do they have to be pitted one against the other? Why can't you listen to a story around a campfire or the oral traditions of, 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 and the folk tales of a people and still uh, read the Odyssey uh, or the, uh, uh, or the uh, myths of, of uh, Norwegian folk tales or listen to Wagner and go also to, to see a, a rock concert or to go see uh, you know, a hip-hop concert? Why do these things have to be mutually exclusive? I don't get it. I mean, I mean the point is, as Goethe once said, you must know everything. That must be the ambition. You must not have uh, a lack of respect for or privilege this culture over another culture. Why not? I saw a marvelous film called Atenajuat, the first movie ever made among the Eskimo people. And, and, and if you thought in some romantic idea that these people of the high, high Arctic were somehow more simple and more closer to the earth and have less problems than the ancient Greeks you got another thing coming. Jealousy, vendetta, a terrible violence, uh, 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 memories that won't die, people burdened, crushed by the history of what came before them that weighs, as was once famously said in another context, on the brain of the living like a nightmare. Um, whenever I hear the word semiotic, you'll forgive the expression, I, I, I break out in hives. Uh, uh, compounded by hearing the word text. There are stories. There are people who lived and they tell stories. Uh, I see no reason why uh, these things can't be enjoyed. And we, we suffer as a people. We are impoverished as a people generally if we only have command of one language. Would that I uh, had a command of five or six languages because it would be a great way of like seeing a whole other sensibility, experiencing a whole sensibility. Uh, we should not uh, spurn such knowledge and privilege one way of thinking over another. We should try to learn all of these ways. I have a question and kind of an answer as well. Um, question is, who in popular culture or of power mentions books anymore. I mean, I mean, you mentioned a few books, but you didn't mention your favorite book, um, nor did you mention the book you read that you thought was great, the last great book you read. So if you're a young person, where do you reference a book unless someone talks about it at least, right? Well, presumably, it's important that people in their family the library, presumably, their, their, their teachers. It only takes one good teacher to really change a life. One person who sits down with you and reads to you. My friend Mona Simpson, who's an author, was taught to read by her mother with Campbell's alphabet soup, with the letters. And uh, it was an ancient tradition, really. In medieval times, Jewish children... Uh, uh, were the bread was baked, uh, the challah was baked in the form of uh, the Hebrew letters, and they literally consumed the language that they were being taught to to read. Um, there was a deep and passionate connection that the mystery and alchemy of the written text contained a a magic that could be unlocked only by mastering the language itself. And once a child understands that, that through books, whole worlds will open up. I very much am opposed to the notion that, uh, that, that, that in order to teach children uh, to embrace this way of knowing, that you must only give them, or even mostly give them, books in which they can recognize themselves or similar people. 
Books are a fantastically economical way of transporting yourself into other worlds. No one knew this better than Ray Bradbury, who transported us to other uh, landscapes and planets while, through a sleight of hand, forcing us to recognize the paradoxes and dilemmas in the world we actually inhabit. Uh, He was brilliant. He was a genius at that. So, yes, favorite books, it's very important. It's very important that children sit on a lap and learn to, to read uh, so that the experience is a human one. I have great feelings about this because I, I have four children of, of my own. Would you comment on the Harry Potter phenomenon, especially in respect to whether or not there's any data on whether it has encouraged children to keep reading after they've read Harry Potter? Uh, all of the anecdotal data that I know, i.e. grilling at great length uh, Barbara Mead at Politics and Prose, a bookstore in Washington, D.C., or, uh, or, or Andy Ross at Cody's Bookstore in, in Berkeley, or, or uh, Doug Dutton here, uh, all of the available evidence suggests that Harry Potter has done a lot of good. Because one thing it did is it, um, it demonstrated to quite young children that they need not be fearful of tackling a 700-page doorstop. So, you know, when my son Paul read five times every one of those things, uh, you know, at ages, you know, what was it, you know, nine... 11, 12, or whatever it was, when he conquered the, the, the third one, which was like 758 pages, I looked at him and I said, you know, there's no book on my shelves that you can't read. Every, every book here you can read, you know, if it'll hold your interest. So I, I, I'm all for J.K. Rowling, who's now richer than the queen. <laughs> Literally, richer than the queen. Um, you know, the Harry Potter thing is a phenomenon. It's been much commented on. Um, the books are engaging for what they are. Um, I, I, the, I, you know, I say two, three, many books, more power to her. I'm, I'm very pleased. Thank you very, um, very much for this evening. Um, one quick question. You've emphasized the difference between fiction and nonfiction. Um, where does poetry fit in that pantheon? Uh, the music of our language. Uh, poetry uh, remains the province of a small and hearty band of devotees, um, a smaller band a band reads it, a larger number of people write it. Uh, but, <laughs> but that's probably the future in which we will have many people writing their memoirs, which will go unpublished, which will find no particular reader, but everybody will have something to say. Thank you very much. listening to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., featuring Steve Wasserman, director of Neerum and Williams Literary Agency and former editor of the Los Angeles Times Book Review. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Special thanks to Semper Law Group, the Los Angeles Times, the James Irvine Foundation, California Endowment, and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles for making this program possible. For more information, please log on to ZocaloLA.org, where you can listen to past shows. If you would like to download tonight's program, please go to kpcc.org and select the podcast button. Zocalo's producer is Peter Stencil. Our engineer is Jade Gao. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for joining us.